Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest whom I'll introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 672nd episode, and I spoke to Smithsonian Associate author, physician, and scientist, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. Two weeks ago, in another great interview, I spoke to Smithsonian Associate Clay Jenkinson about the future of the U.S. Constitution. Wonderful stuff. If you missed those episodes, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we'll read it at the end of each show. Please leave reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. So many of us here in the Not Old Better Show audience love music, but especially love the music videos associated with the song. For sure, that's me. And also, it's very much part of our guest today's expertise, Stephen Patalo. Stephen Patalo is a journalist and author, a music video historian, and founder of the great site and great resource, the Music Video Time Machine. Yep, that's right, Music Video Time Machine. It's a magazine that is one-of-a-kind magazine, takes you behind the scenes of music videos during their heyday, known as the Golden Age of Music Video. That was 1976 through about 1994, if you all remember correctly. So you can read amazing stories and true tales from the people who were there through the interviews with bands and the music video directors, all of the key figures that participated in the evolution of the music video. But we've got the founder of Music Video Time Machine, Stephen Patello, today, and we are going to be talking all about music videos, their unique history in the music world, their importance, and some of the wonderful behind-the-scenes stories that Stephen Patalo will share with us. Again, please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, founder of Music Video Time Machine, Stephen Patalo. Stephen Patalo, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. It's really great to be here. It's great to talk to you, too. I love this magazine that you're doing, Music Video Time Machine. We're going to talk about that, as well as some of these really cool things that you've got going on, which I think are going to be wonderful, specifically because our audience is just going to enjoy this subject. I think so much of of music influences my audience. I think it influences us all, but I think you combine music and video together and that leads us straight back, certainly many of us, me particularly, I'm 65, but right back to this whole music video generation that MTV influenced. And so I thought I'd just start with this kind of just this first question about MTV, because MTV was such a big force. I mean, in my life, I remember all of these videos so well as I, I was kind of doing my research of you. I went back and watched a lot of these videos and spent my time wisely, had a good time doing it. But at the time, MTV, it sure wasn't a certainty, you know, and there were a lot of ifs, a lot of questions. And I wonder, as you started your new venture, Music Video Time Machine magazine, did you think about that? Did you think about well, what did MTV go through? How do I do some of these things? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about how MTV even influenced you, uh, period. Well, it's interesting you should say I'm definitely part of that MTV generation. Um, I was a teenager 
uh, by junior high, high school, and college are actually 80 to 90 exactly. So uh, I, I absolutely fell right in. Um, MTV launched on, as we know, on August 1st, 1981, but uh, it didn't make its way to some of these markets until much later, especially mine. Um, a lot of people don't realize that MTV was not on the air in New York or Los Angeles until actually 19, until 1983. So originally, this was in very small markets across the country um, on cable when, you know, in the early days of cable, uh, and they were selling these uh, Record companies were trying to sell the records at, with this new uh, medium, this new way of, of doing it. You see, music video had been around for, for quite a while before that, but it didn't have a, a central location in the United States where people could go and see it. And then this channel just launches and it has this, it's like FM radio on television 24 hours a day. And there was just nothing like it. Nobody could have predicted that what it was going to do, whether it was going to work or not. Because if you try to explain it uh, on paper, it sounds like a bunch of commercials on TV all the time. And, and it's, <laughs> so that doesn't really translate. Now, when I decided I wanted to do this magazine, it was, because I had been interviewing music video directors for more than a decade. Um, I had interviewed more than 70 by the time I started to do this. And uh, I, everybody from the award-winning directors to the more utilitarian players to, to some of the trademark auteurs. And I was trying to gain insight, you know, some, some real knowledge and, and maybe find a common thread among them. And when I did, it was actually it was something really kind of magical emerged from these conversations because I realized these music video directors were bona fide filmmakers and they hadn't really been interviewed by journalists from that filmmaking standpoint. They, worship, they weren't asked you know, how their work came together. And, and, and so when I was talking to these guys, I was fascinated um, because we also live in an era now where you can watch those videos online. You can access them at any moment and then discuss them. So that's that's an option that was actually not possible when uh, they were created or even, you know, a few years after that. Um, some of these guys had forgotten, you know, these interesting details about their work. Uh, and it triggered some memories for them, uh, some valuable information. Um, and so I, I was very lucky because I was able to... Uh, to access these fascinating stories. Um, and, and actually you can think of it as a, a fairly undocumented period of filmmaking history because the record companies and the talent management hadn't quite figured out a tried and true formula for creating music videos that sold records. Um, you know, many times these directors would get an assignment uh, and, they, and they would not be interfered with by the record company. And that's, man for any commercial director that's a dream come true <laughs> you know it's like these guys the, the guys at the record company would say here here's thirty thousand dollars just go make it look good um just make something cool because that's what mtv wants they want stuff that's cool so these guys were challenged by small budgets and they had these unrealistic time constraints um but it, it was a, it was like a trial by fire to a certain extent. And many of these directors, they use their creativity to solve these problems. Um, and they could express their vision with this freedom that many of these guys told me they never experienced again. And they never actually had as much fun as they did when they were doing this. Because when you think about it, you 
you, if you have kind of a free hand to shoot what you know whatever you want you can have the band in it you can i mean there were some of them that did not have the band in it and the work is it, it can be daring it could be narrative it can be surreal and then when you're done with it you turn it in and it gets played on the hottest channel going and it's it's instant cool and it's it's on repeat you know it's not like you shot a a, a television show a half hour comedy that you know goes on the air and then it's gone until uh until reruns you know at, at the time that's kind of how things work this time your work is up there on rotation and it goes again and again and again i mean it's it's the type of filmmaking uh opportunity that i think we've rarely ever seen and i uh set it up as what i call the golden age of music video from 1976 till about 1993 yeah, it it's fascinating too because and, and you're really to be congratulated for this because music video time machine really it captures all of this and it celebrates these videos in addition to these amazing interviews that you've done. I wonder do you think because you kind of allude to this a little bit. I mean, do you think the filmmakers themselves felt so celebrated at the time because they were just given this staggering opportunity by by MTV and did they all get it? Did they? Did some of them just kind of nod to themselves, thinking, "Oh my gosh, here I this is going to make my career." <laughs> no, I don't think any of them thought that that's what was going to happen. <laughs> I think the ones in the UK and the ones in the US had starkly different experiences. Um, the UK filmmakers were all influenced by um, art school and. Uh, different design magazines and uh, a lot of filmmaking, conne uh, not connections, but influences. Uh, in the United States, the guys who were getting these music video jobs were basically commercial directors. They were shooting uh, commercials for beer and for cars and for perfume and for, you know, soft drinks and stuff like that. And, and getting a music video was kind of a side thing. There was no such thing as a full-time music video director in 1982, 83, or even 85. Um, and it didn't pay hardly anything. And the, the budgets, you know, for the time, I mean, between 15 to $30,000 uh, is, a fair uh, way to think about how much they were they were going to have to use for the, for one of these clips, but you have to also understand at the time things were, it was not a digital age. It was shot on film or on video, and then you go into the studio and then you cut it together. I mean, these things they they take a fair amount of time, but you know you really had to hustle. You had to figure out you know where you were going to be able to solve your problems without money. Uh, many of these videos that are classics now, people don't realize some of them were shot on 16 millimeter film. Uh, it, you know, it's it's completely incredible that a lot of these were actually able to be created in the amount of time and with the amount of money that they were able to do it. Yeah, in a very lush way. You know, oftentimes these this is great stuff. It's really great. Again, congratulations uh, to you and all. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I wondered. Did the record companies have a clue? Did anybody at the record company really just say to themselves, because what, you know, 2020 hindsight and all of that, it just is this perfect marriage, you know, video and, and music. But did the record companies understand that at the time? Well, it, in the UK, I believe that they did understand the power of it because they were using it to 
break their bands and uh, get some publicity across Europe. They would send these, what they called the international clip or pop promo. Um, they would send these videotapes to different television shows across Europe, Germany, France, wherever, because they all had these television shows that would show these videos. Um, it sometimes would take the place of a tour in being the promotional tool to sell these records. So um, throughout the 70s, um, the UK labels all had these departments that they would create these videos. Now, having said that, once MTV starts, uh, if you look at the first day, uh, almost every clip that is on, whether it's a uh, UK or a US band, is directed by a UK director. They were so far ahead of, uh, of the, the game. Um, perfect example is uh, the very first band that plays on MTV, an American channel, is a British band directed by a British <laughs> filmmaker. It's Video Killed the Radio Star by Buggles, directed by Russell Mulcahy, who technically is Australian, but uh, he made his bones mostly uh, in the UK. Um, then the next video is Pat Benatar's You Better Run, which is directed by Keith McMillan, who's a British director. And then third is one of the more unsung heroes of the video era, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart is so far ahead of everything that's happening at any moment in music history. It's, it's staggering. He does not get nearly enough credit. The very first day that MTV is on the air, Rod Stewart has 11 clips in rotation on MTV. 11. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's incredible. And it's because he had made so many throughout the 70s. I mean, I, I think they, the very first day they showed his uh, clip for Sailing. That's from like 1972. So, I, yes, part of what what's happening to to answer your question is that I, I think the the UK labels they all knew that this was something that would work in the United States. Not so much because there wasn't anything uh, prior to MTV except a few little outlets here and there. HBO had video jukebox that they would show some videos between movies, and then you, you know you had a few things like that across the country but it was uh the, it was when mtv went on the air and then those little markets you know tulsa winston-salem you know wherever they were um they would get the numbers in from there and after mtv on the went on the air they would look at the numbers and and you know in tulsa we're selling culture club we're selling duran duran you know who how do these kids even know about these bands and the answer is mtv Hi, it's Paul. We will be right back with our interview with Stephen Patallo about his wonderful new website and all of the music videos that he has got to talk to us about. So you got to stay tuned for this. But I wanted to mention our sponsor today, Uncommon Goods. Yep, Uncommon Goods. There are lots of holidays that are approaching, and all of us in the Not Old Better Show audience likely have pretty big lists. I have a new daughter-in-law. Both my sons are in relationships that I'll need to consider multiple gifts for, and my mom just moved. <laughs> 92. She needs a gift for just moving. <laughs> Seriously, though, I always try to get gifts that avoid the boring, avoid the bland gifts, and be better this year. Remember, we try to talk about better here, and now we can do better, especially when it comes to gift giving. Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. 
Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or, like me, for my entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Here are a few of my favorite gifts that I have found on their website. Again, we're going to put the site name and URL in our website, but it's Uncommon Goods. I have found this great, very uncommon men's bracelet that will be ideal for my sons, not to give anything away here. The handmade jewelry for my wife and daughter-in-law are fantastic. And the amazing lists of categories where you can find gifts by interest are more than helpful. Check out the teens section if you're a grandparent and you've got grandchildren or the subscription series where you'll find gifts like the Sleep Well subscription. That's right, Sleep Well subscription, which includes everything that a light sleeper like my wife (laughs) might need to catch more Z's. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade, or are just made in the United States with all the quality that that brings. They have the most meaningful out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you can find just anywhere. Hey, and with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off of your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash notoldbetter. That's uncommongoods.com slash notoldbetter. All of this will be in the show notes today. But by going to uncommongoods.com slash notoldbetter, you will get 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer and these wonderful limited gifts. Uncommon Goods is out of the ordinary. Thanks, everybody. We are back with Stephen Patalo. Stephen Patalo is founder of Music Video Time Machine Magazine. I want to encourage our audience to go check out Music Video Time Machine because it, it is just this fantastic new magazine from Stephen Patalo, our guest today. Tell us the story about um, about John Oates because I I really I didn't know some of that. I don't want to, you know, I I want to leave people wanting more here, Stephen Patel. I want them to go to your site and check out your magazine. But I think that story is one that's really great, you know, because the I I did not know that the videos were considered so bad, but because the songwriting was so good, <laughs> the videos didn't matter. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have given Hall and Oates kind of a hard time about their videos because there isn't, there, none of them are really that good. Um, but because uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates are great songwriters, they just could not miss. I mean, throughout the 80s, it was just one huge hit after another. And because they had a, a music video presence, just a presence, they were able to uh, you know, be a part of the game I, they weren't going to win any awards, but uh, you know, when if you write a great a great song, uh, it takes a really, really, really bad video to ruin it. So they, they had the they had the luck of having mediocre and or you know, uh, eh, 
but John, I mean, he made it very clear. He, he did not uh, enjoy making them. He didn't think um, that was what he was put on earth for. <laughs> He's a musician. Uh, so the, the process of making some of these videos, he was, it was nice of him enough to just uh, to talk about what it was like on the set for some of those. Um, the very first one actually that they ever did for She's Gone uh, had a new sort of resurgence online because I think a couple of people, uh, it, it, I think that you would technically say that it went viral because it was so strange. Uh, and he talked about why they made it and how they made it and why it's such a weird looking thing. Um, and then uh, Jay Dubin was the director on a bunch of those uh, silly black background uh, what you would call a black box video for private eyes. And I, I can't go for that. Um, and then they worked with a, an artist named Mick Haggerty who did mostly uh, album covers and he shot uh man eater and family man and one-on-one Mick Haggerty and his partner, uh, uh, CD Taylor. Um, so we talked about that. He talked about out of touch and method of modern love, which were directed by Jeff Stein. Um, and one of my favorite things uh, is to, when I interviewed Jeff Stein about the different videos he directed, he uh, and we were talking about safety and things like that. Um, at the time, Hall and Oates were being managed by Tommy Matola, who was very protective of the band. So he says to Jeff uh, about this one set when they were shooting Method of Modern Love, it was like a large step off, almost like a cliff. And he says, Jeff, that looks really, really dangerous. I, it, it, do you think do you think they'll they'll you know everything's okay up there because it really looks dangerous? And Jeff says, Oh no, if he fell off of that, he'd be killed instantly. <laughs> so that doesn't really uh, instill a lot of uh, yeah. I mean, one of our other uh, what? Yeah, one of our other our other interviews was uh, David Mallet, who did Billy Idol and Def Leppard and. Uh, ACDC and uh, David Bowie's Let's Dance and China Girl and things like that. And he said that there was there's a shot in Billy Idol's White Wedding where there's a motorcycle coming down a flight of stairs. And uh, he said there's there's no there's no medic on set. There's you know in case of there's no safety officer or anything like that. So if this guy would have gone a little too far to the left and too far to the right on this motorcycle. He probably would have died or or hurt been hurt so badly that uh, he would never have recovered. Um, but he said that back then it it just wasn't something that they were they were talking about or they they cared about. It, it was it was about making a great video, and so sometimes they would be as daring as they thought uh, they could get away with. Right, and and it was it was interesting the transition from kind of some of these live music events to what you know, became stories, you know, mini films, you know, you say shot on 16 millimeter film stock. I mean, that's just amazing kind of quality that comes from that on the cover of this most recent issue uh, of music video time machine is John Landis. He comes to mind as being kind of one of those storytellers kind of creating those mini films, many M-I-N-I films. Tell us a little bit about John Landis's success with music videos because that really did start his career in a lot of ways. Although, was he doing commercials too prior to kind of the music video gig? Well, to tell you the truth, John Landis is kind of an anomaly. Um, And I chose 
to have the interview with him be on our very first cover story because he directed what is arguably the most famous music video ever made, Michael Jackson's Thriller. And he had actually, uh, the process of how that was created and all was, has been covered extensively in many different places, and most, uh, most assuredly in the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller, which was a, a, a one-hour special. And not many people realized it. Thriller was so huge, so huge, that they sold VHS of the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. They, they sold millions of copies of that, of that VHS. Now, think about that in, in, in a, pre, a pre-internet world. You had to go to a, a, rec, a record store or somewhere, you know, to even find it and then to buy it. And so to have sold millions of copies of that, it's, it's kind of crazy. But what was nice was that I, in the process of interviewing different music video directors, I uh, was like, how am I going to get to, how am I going to get to John Landis? And then he wrote this great book uh, about, I'm not sure how long ago it was, uh, Monsters in the Movies. And so I was able to connect to him through the the publicist for the book. And he actually came to Brooklyn where I live and did a, uh, did a screening and a signing. Um, they did a screening of his film into the night. Um, so by the time thriller happens, Michael, uh, uh, Michael Jackson's thriller gained from uh, John Landis being a real filmmaker. And the only reason Michael Jackson really wanted John Landis was because he had directed an American werewolf in London. Um, and Michael wanted to turn into a monster, um, on screen like that. And so that was kind of the main idea to do that. And, and because it's been covered so many times and he's talked about it so many, so many different ways, I had to find some other questions for him, um, that hadn't been covered to kind of connect with this. And one of the things I thought was very interesting was that, um, the record company absolutely did not want to pay for this at all. They they basically wanted Michael back in the studio to start working on the follow-up to Thriller. I mean, it had sold millions. It had had already, I think, five top 10 hits, maybe six already. Uh, so they didn't want to pay for it. Um, and that was one issue. Another issue was uh, the, uh, the the whole issue of what were they going to, how are they going to make this thing and have it be different than the other things that were on television? I mean, Michael had already done beat it with uh, Bob Giraldi as the direct. That was pretty groundbreaking. Um, Billy Jean was pretty popular, but his performance on the Motown 30 uh, Motown 25 special was really the, the defining moment for Billy Jean. So uh, John wanted to make a, sort of a short uh, and they wanted to show it in theaters. And so they, he went through all these different, you know, processes to try to get it made. And eventually they, they did it. And one of the great things that people rarely know is that, um, they had to go steal the tracks from, uh, Quincy Jones, uh, studio. Um, Michael just kind of, you know, he's Michael Jackson. So he just sort of walked in the front door <laughs> and they grabbed the, they grabbed the tapes and they duped them and they recut the, recut them. And they actually had, uh, Vincent Price come in 
and redo his vocals, his thing, the thing he says. And it's almost identical. They, they said he was, it was incre- an incredible experience. So, you know, uh, John Landis is having a ball. He's working with Vincent Price. He's like, you know, he, he did it in 15 minutes, apparently. So um, that was one of the great things getting to talk to him about. And then uh, people, don't, people sometimes forget he also directed the video for Black or White. Um, which is two two albums later and a completely different Michael. So his stories in the magazine about that are, are kind of amazing. And then he also talks about shooting. Uh, he had shot a film, the, the film Spies Like Us, and Paul McCartney came up with Spies Like Us song. And so they, they, then he's supposed to do a video for it, which is silly too. Um, so there's some these great uh, these great little stories that he was able to to portray, and he was so kind and so nice on the phone, and and um, he he let a, a few things uh, I don't want to say slip, but told me a few things I didn't realize. Apparently, um, for Black or White, John was hired after two, they had gone through two other filmmakers, David Fincher and David Lynch. Can you imagine David Lynch? shooting a Michael Jackson video. Apparently it did not go well. Um, so so they eventually they called John because they knew that they they could get, the, the biggest problem was getting Michael to the set. And they knew that if John was on it, that he could he would talk to Michael like he was Michael from 1984 and get him on the set. And so one of the smartest things John did was he said, well, you're gonna pay me uh, a daily rate. Um, and there's no limit on it. And so they were like, okay, because they thought it'd be done. And it took like three months. And he <laughs> ended up making a decent amount of money on it. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, the, the John Landis thing was a whole lot of fun. And, and I, I do encourage people to uh, to check it out, along with so many of the other things that we have uh, in this issue. Um, I was so, I've been so, I've been very, very, very fortunate to be able to talk with all these different music video uh, directors. So we're able to go behind the scenes uh, for videos by David Bowie and Hall and & Oates and, and Nirvana and Paul McCartney and Queen and Lionel Richie and Cameo and Blondie and the Go-Go's. And I mean, it just goes on and on. And, and um, what's great is I was able to actually talk to some of the bands as well. So we have uh, interviews with um, members of Bananarama and, and Berlin. Um, like you said, we talked to John Oates as well, um, and that was a that was a great interview as well. Well, we definitely are going to want you to come back uh, in the future to Stephen Patello. Tell us more about this great magazine that you've uh, created, Music Video Time Machine. Again, we'll put links to where our audience can find out everything about this fantastic resource, all of these great stories, all this behind the scenes stuff that Stephen Patello has unearthed and. Uh, shared with us and um we're just gonna expect it you know we're just gonna look forward to it so Stephen patella thank you for your time today thanks for being so generous thanks for doing such a great job on the magazine congratulations again and gosh please come back oh you're very you're very kind i, I just want to ask you real quick um paul what's what's your favorite music video ever <laughs> oh my gosh uh, you know I, See, I'm old, so I mean, I loved Paula Abdul's videos. I I loved John Landis's uh, work, you know, with Michael Jackson. Hard not to love, you know, um, 
uh, you know, David Coverdale. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Hard not to love that. I guess, you know, I really, I I probably, you know, I'm like a lot of people, um, you know, uh, when I got, when I would see artists that I didn't really know very well and get a glimpse into who they were. I'm a big fan of Jackson Brown, and so I loved a lot of his stuff. Um, the Doobie Brothers, oh my gosh, the, the list goes on and on and on. I, any of those strike a chord? I mean, any of those? Well, I was going to say, Jackson Brown's Tender is the Night is directed by yeah. a, a guy named uh, Robert Radler, who actually, he became a filmmaker. He shot a film with Eric Roberts, I believe, called Best of the Best. And uh, if you watch Tender is the Night, it's the the budget and the the production value on it is so high it looks like a feature film it's shot so well and it's just it's always such a crapshoot as to who is going (laughs) to break through in the video era and who would not i mean jackson brown he did okay but he he wasn't you know he didn't break through like say tom petty or billy joel so Mm -hmm, but but mm -hmm. how much how much really sing how much singer songwriters uh, breakthrough in the video era is, is such a uh, such a weird thing. Who knew that someone like Billy Joel would would you know really break through, and someone like James Taylor or Carly Simon would not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. and and just getting back to your Paula Abdul, um, the, the, <laughs> the the music video for Straight Up by Paula Abdul, yeah. directed by David Fincher. Wow. Yeah, I, I know. That was one that's of his, amazing. One of his big deals. I, I encourage people to go online and check out some of uh, David Fincher's music videos from the early days because they really do have an insight into, into his filmmaking style. Just as early as a clip he did for the motels um, huh. called uh, Shock. It's got all that uh, David Fincher lighting and uh, chasing down a hallway type stuff that you'll see, you then you see later. Um, and, uh, also take a look at a, a video that he shot for Bush called greedy fly. Oh, dark stuff. And of course, famously he yeah. shot, he shot Aerosmith's Janie's got a gun. And if that's not a, huh. not a David Fincher film right there, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what that it is. is. A, that's a dark. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Amazing. No idea. I did not know that about Paula Abdul and David Fincher. Yeah. She, I, I, I loved her dance stuff. She, she just, you know, you could, I didn't really know a lot about her at the time. I didn't know about the Laker girl kind of stuff, but um, well, she's still she on. Uh, was she's great still, on. Yeah, she's still on. Yeah. Uh, on social media, tearing it up with her dance moves on TikTok. So you know, she's yeah, still yeah. What, still hard at it. Um, yeah. That, so yeah, I, I encourage you guys to uh, <laughs> continue to check yeah, out what Paula absolutely. Abdul is doing because she never seems of to course. Stop. All right. Well, please come back because I, we I could talk to you for a long time about this stuff, Stephen Patel. So thank you. Sure, I'd love to come back. I hope to get to talk to you again soon, Paul. Yes, we'll do it. My thanks to Uncommon Goods for sponsoring today's show. Please check out Uncommon Goods in our show notes today and support our sponsors as they in turn support the show. My thanks as well to Stephen Patello, founder of Music Video Time Machine and his generous time today. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm telling you each and every show, followed by my message to eliminate assault rifles. 
Only members of the military use these weapons and need them. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn. School. Let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.